Metal episode 39. Uh, for this episode, it's just going to be me talking about, uh, basically entirely about one musician I'm really fond of. Uh, and a relatively underrated one, I think, or at least not so well known these days. So this entire episode is going to be based around the Netherlands-based drummer Ed Warby, who... Um, has been about in the kind of the metal scene since the early 90s really and with that we're going to get I'm going to cover him essentially by going through five albums that I particularly love of his should give you a diverse range of the guy's style with that I think I'm going to start with something from the very early 90s this is his first death metal recording this is the band Gorefest and their second album False released in 1992 Gorefest are kind of, again, another like slightly forgotten one, as far as I can tell. It seems like we know a lot about like, the Swedish death metal scene and obviously the various um, metal scenes around the States, even Finnish death metal scene to a large extent, but the Dutch death metal scene seems to be a really kind of forgotten part of that early 90s wave of thousands upon thousands of death metal bands, and... I, I kind of really enjoy a lot of the, the Dutch stuff. I guess it's not quite as flashy as some of the other scenes. So I'd say the core of like the Dutch death metal sound is this kind of... It's got the huge guitar sound of, say, something like the New York scene, but it hasn't got that level of technicality, like that kind of real in-your-face shredding. It's far more groove and riff-orientated. And it doesn't have the kind of sinister evilness of... Um, the kind of Finnish or Swedish sound, it's more, yeah, it's more like a riffy, just heavy, punishing sound. And Gorefest are very typical of that sound. So they started back in around 1998, with, sorry, 19, 1989, I should say, um, with their first album, Mind Loss. Now, Mind Loss was, it's fine. It's, it's not a massively exciting album, but what really changes with the band between this and their second album, False, is there's a massive shift in lineup. So um, both their drummer and lead guitarist were replaced. Like, So we get uh, Boudouin Bonebacker on lead guitar, who's like previously mainly played in like kind of alt-rock bands, but was this amazing force for like writing brilliant, um, really well-executed lead guitar passages. He's like a solid rhythm guitarist as well, but like he, he's very good at writing these catchy melodic solos and Ed Warby joint on drums. And the, the kind of change is, is infinite between the two albums because Ed Warby is this precise, like very rhythmic, very memorable drummer. And the band just suddenly coalesce into this really perfect death metal unit. Sound-wise, um, false. It, to my mind, it sounds kind of like Harmony Corruption era Napalm Death if it was just a bit slower and doomier. Like, it's not a doom album by any extent. This is a solid mid-paced death metal album. But it's got that kind of crushing kind of grind guitar sound to it. I should mention the rest of the lineup in this album is made up of Frank Hawthorne on rhythm and lead guitar and Jan Chris Takuja on bass and vocals. And like you can really see, say, like the influence of that early earache sound on this. There's so much take like maybe not taken, but so much you can see slightly inspired by by a lot of those bands. There's a lot of clips, uh, like kind of very short um samples between a few of the songs 
that sound very reminiscent of those Necroticism-era carcass samples. I don't know if this album's before or after, actually, but it's even got, like, similar effects on them. Um, although, whereas um, carcass were very gore-influenced, at this point, Gorefest had moved to doing far more, like, left-wing political lyrics. Their first album, Mind Lost, was, um, was all that kind of gore stuff, but <laughs> Jan Chris has said in interviews that he just thought uh, Carcass were doing it better, so switched to doing that kind of kind of more political, angry kind of lyrics, which I think works a huge amount better. Those gore lyrics can get very tiresome if not done amazingly well. And, and um, so, talking to Jan Chris, his vocal delivery is one of the main things that puts me in mind of that Napalm Death sound. He's got a really a similar kind of low-pitched growl to Barney from Napalm Death. It's that kind of super low bellow it's not quite as kind of like guttural or gurgling as a lot of death metal vocalists it's kind of quite clear and it's just like a lot of the power of it just comes from him having a ludicrously deep voice um there's also a couple of those kind of high-end napalm death screams thrown in there those kind of weird shrieking vocals but they're very few and far between and actually something the band completely drop off this album so, what really makes this album such an immense powerhouse? It's just the riffing, like, and I think a huge amount of that is Ed Warby's performance. Ed Warby always has this drum sound on pretty much any album I can think of. He's been on it, this massive snare drum sound, and because he's so kind of tight with it, it just keeps everything locked into these really good grooves. And the album moves between some very slow elements into faster bits, um... And actually, often, even in any individual song, they're doing a lot of that. So, like, Reality When You Die starts with this really slow, doomy, heavy kind of riff. And then in the midsection, just bursts out into, like, this really fast, like, pounding... Like, not quite blast, like, Edward never really tends to blast with stuff, but just super fast, um, kind of more punk-infused beat. Then we get some really cool like steps away from like the heaviness um, with uh, Bonebacker's kind of solos in certain places. They're few and far between on this album, but say in like the Glorious Dead, False, or particularly uh, the Mass Insanity towards the end of the album, you get these huge kind of um, like just super melodic, like really memorable guitar solos. Um, the general guitar tone of this album is fantastic. So on engineering, production, kind of all the studio work, they managed to team up with Colin Richardson, who's the kind of staple for a lot of those early Earache albums and also famous for working with Machine Head for most of their albums. I don't think the last two, though. Um, and he has just got this perfect guitar tone. Like The general tone of this album, I think, is what really sells it beyond anything else. It's one of the better of these early death metal albums of being super clear, but yet still heavy and really in your face. It's very powerful and just, yeah, the guitar tones are brilliant. The drums sound incredible. The bass kind of comes in and out here and there, but it's not... It, it just sits in the mix right to make everything sound massive. And that's it. With these kind of very groove-orientated, very catchy riffs, that's exactly what you want. So, um, I should mention as well with Ed Warby, at this point he... This wasn't like the first album he'd ever recorded on, but I believe it's the first metal album. So he was kind of poached from the rock band Elegy, who were kind of far more melodic. 
but at this stage he'd been getting into bands that were far more death metal orientated like obituary death autopsy those kind of super heavy like nasty sounding bands i mean death were at this point in time you've got to remember this is like 1992 before the real sort of well kind of in the midst of the death metal explosion so um for this album they were picked up by nuclear blast who were kind of still an album uh, still a label that's kind of building at this point in time um and apparently false is the most expensive album nuclear blast had done at this time and hence why it's got this incredible tone to it and talking of like napalm death style influences if you look at the cover it 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 looks like an early Napalm Death cover. It's like this weird collage of various religious symbolisms, like a hand holding a gun and all sorts. I think it's actually done by... Yeah, it's done by a guy called Mid, who had done a few of the Napalm Death covers. Um, it's fuck ugly. I really don't like it, but you can see that kind of interesting influence, um, sort of those kind of British bands have been having on this. Um, and there almost is some sort of punkisms from there in this as well. Like certain bits of um, Ed's drum performance really make me think of those kind of late 80s, hyper-aggressive, like almost hardcore punk bands from around that time. This, uh, I would say, is one of the real high points of the Gorefest discography. So they, they've now broken up. They they broke up in 98, reformed in 2000, and broke up again for good in 2009, and released uh, six albums over that time period. And it all goes a bit weird after this. So False was like definitely their like death metal like signature, the, the kind of the great mission statement from the band. And after that, in 1994, they released Erase, which I really like. It's one of those albums I like, despite the fact that the production is fucking horrible. They couldn't get Colin Richardson again, so um, got a different guy in who, who'd worked with Colin, but clearly wasn't quite as experienced. And the album just got this really weird sound to it. Where it's like it's very, very clean for a um, for a, a de- like a death metal album. So on False, um, like a lot of the guitar work, like especially the lead work, had been split equally between. Uh, Frank and uh, Bouchwin and it'd been kind of interesting because Frank had this kind of more kind of messy rough kind of lead guitar style whereas Bouchwin had this far more kind of flashy melodic kind of classic rock infused style Erase he takes full control of lead guitar duties as far as I can tell and the whole album has far more of these kind of over the top like flashy lead bits which is really cool, and I like a lot of that, but it seems like the production was almost moved to serve that, and it just loses a lot of the heavy edge. I think the songwriting's incredible, and I do still highly recommend checking out Arrays. In fact, there's a really good um, dual CD pack you can get of both this and Arrays. Um, but after that, we get Soul Survivor two years later, and they suddenly decide to turn into like a melodic hard rock band, but with Yang Chris still doing these kind of death metal vocals over it. That and the follow-up chapter 13, I don't really understand. I'm, I've never quite... It sounds like a band trying to do two different things at once. And, you know, not long after chapter 13, the, sort of the band imploded. But then we get, like, what's probably the the most worthwhile checking out of their stuff is they reform um, in around 2004 and release two more albums, uh, and the final one of which, Rise to Ruin, well and truly sounds like False Part 2. It's... Um, 
I'd say it's possibly a bit more overblown than false. Like, there's there's a few songs that go on a bit too long. I think there's like a nine minute long track on it, but it's it's definitely a huge attempt to recreate the kind of sound and groove of false, um, which which is really cool. I, I'm glad this, the band eventually went back to their roots after taking a break, um, doing more kind of weird stuff. Other things really worth mentioning about about the kind of time period around 1992-93 is they were becoming huge as a live band. I mean, we kind of forget these days like how massive death metal bands were back in the early 90s. So they, um, they had a really successful live show at Dynamo Festival, which was then recorded uh, at their live at Eindhoven, Eindhoven um, CD. And it, it's, it sounds incredible. Right? They, these guys were really known as a truly brilliant live unit. And despite like, kind of their dislike of the sound of the album Arrays, they still loved playing live at that point in time. And their performances were really what they were known for. There's a great, um, great video you can find on YouTube of them playing Reality When You Die, um, I think it is the recordings on the live at Eindhoven CD, and you can see just like how powerful and over the top it was. And this is still at that time where bands were finding their feet in what death metal actually was. So it's um, like they're they're kind of jumping around the stage in a kind of a way you don't really see death metal bands do anymore. Like it's far more haphazard and like I guess even slightly silly looking but like the enthusiasm is really there and there's this amazing thing where you can see audience members essentially getting fired out of the crowd because it's going so crazy where they're just like getting just flung over the the barrier while they're getting like because it's clearly hot as hell uh getting hosed down by these like massive hoses like uh, to the side of stage it's a pretty incredible um yeah a pretty incredible artifact that a few other interesting things i was just reading the uh sort of the booklet that goes along with the double album of apparently uh during a tour of sweden with deicide a bomb was detonated at one of their shows um apparently like apparently by black metal fans who didn't like their left-wing political leanings that is covered in like a sentence and i can't find anything more on this but it sounds like there's a really interesting story there i don't know if anyone was hurt in this explosion or not but yeah you kind of forget how terrifying and right-wing strange black metal was early on but yeah <laughs> um and yeah the other interesting thing is the reason they couldn't uh record their next album arrays with colin richardson is he'd gone off to record uh machine head's first album to burn my eyes so i think he probably picked the right band out of the two because that definitely went on to become a true kind of classic and i don't know if Gorefest ever would have gone on quite in that same way especially with the change of direction coming up. I don't. I think this band were never going to be huge because they sort of rode that early wave of death metal and then kind of became forgotten. I've really not heard them mention much since, despite the apparent popularity they had really early on. But if you're a kind of death metal purist or someone who really likes that kind of early 90s death metal sound, False is not an album to be overlooked. It's one that really should be in most... Uh, death metal fans collections uh, to give you a hint of the kind of interesting kind of changes going on the sound on this album i think i'm going to play a clip from the final track the mass insanity which showcases some of the amazing kind of grooves of the album but also some of the brilliantly guitar <laughs> Oh, 
jumping on quite a few years, one well, of the next uh, Ed Warby projects, well, this one's more of just a general supergroup, but after after kind of the fall of Gorefest, Ed Warby gets involved in one very successful band that we'll talk about right at the end, but otherwise doesn't seem to do a great deal sort of around like the kind of early to mid-2000s, but then a load of amazing things start happening kind of late 2000s and one of the projects is probably one of the more famous ones um from that period is the uh, the dutch death metal supergroup hail of bullets um i'm going to be covering their second album on divine winds uh released in 2010 they formed in about 2006 and broke up in 2017 released a grand total of about three albums now this band featured uh, members of asphyx Thanatos, and howitzer as well as obviously ed warby from gorefest um, so their vocalist was Martin Van Drunen, who most self-respecting death metal fans know very well for his work with Pestilence and Asphyx, and his incredibly weird, unique voice. Uh, and then we've got um, guitarists from, like, Paul Bayens from um, Asphyx, and uh, Stefan Gelby and Theo Van Elklin from Thanatos. Thanatos are one of those bands where I've heard a bit and they sound really good, but I've never managed to delve too deeply into but They seem to be a very important act in the kind of the Netherlands death metal scene. So the idea of this band is more or less they got together wanting to do something that worshipped that early death metal sound. So we've got the kind of Really, I'd say in the vein of stuff like um, Bolt Thrower and Benediction, and particularly with Bolt Thrower, like all Hail the Bullets albums are these ridiculously kind of well researched uh, Second World War themed albums. Uh, On Divine Winds is entirely based around like sort of the war, the war in Japan, essentially, like the kind of that side of the Second World War, which is interesting. It's something I knew less about and kind of made these these lyrics, um, yeah, kind of really interesting and something I want to pay pay attention to because Martin's also got a voice where you can really understand his lyrics um, and he, he seems to have gone in really good depth on this album. So the kind of sound of this is it's less mid-paced than Gorefest. Like, something that's really clear with Hail of Bullets is you get these incredibly fast guitar passages, but they're not they're not so much, like, really fast uh, right-hand work. It's all in the left-picking hand, so it's just, like, these kind of hyper-fast, like, picked riffs which give the guitars this really brilliant distorted sound, but the actual production of the album is really thick and huge. Like, again... So be a recurring theme with everything with Ed Warby on, but the kick and snare sound is fucking brilliant. And again, he doesn't drop into too much like proper blastingy stuff on this. It's always kind of very fast snare, but still something you can kind of keep the groove with. Um, the album starts with the very short kind of orchestral interlude, it, the Eve of Battle, and then just bursts forth with the amazing Operation Z, which is just these pure like brilliant riffy death metal like just excellent um pounding death metal stuff like something this recurring theme this album i really like is they don't really go in for solo so much as every song tends to have like this middle eight, eight passage which rather than dropping into kind of total shred stuff um goes more for these kind of really memorable like short melodic essentially riffs like these tiny little melodic passages and then, say, Operation Z does something that a lot of the other songs do as well, where it sort of does this almost fake-out ending and then comes in with more kind of cool, memorable, melodic riffing. Like, 
the the calibre of the musicians involved in this is obviously off the charts. Like these are all hyper experienced people, and you know each one of them's recorded five or more albums at this point, and quite a few of them have got a couple of absolute classics under their belt. And to kind of round out the supergroup kind of uh, theme of it on mixing and mastering, we have Dan Swano. And actually, at this point, Ed Warby steps up to do quite a lot of the like studio engineering work. Uh, so he he was heavily involved in the recording process as well. Some real standout tracks from the album are stuff like the aforementioned Operation Z, Full Scale War, On Coral Shores, or the amazingly over-the-top named uh, Tokyo Napalm Holocaust. Um, actually, Kamikaze, the follow-up track to that, has got some of the best of those, like, sort of melodic lead passages I mentioned before. Like, the guitar work on this is amazing. I really do love the tone of it. Main criticism I have of this album is... If for its 50 minute runtime, it's a little bit formulaic and repetitive. Like, it's nothing that sort of ruins it. And much, actually, much like a lot of Bolt for our albums, I would still suggest, like, it's really worth a listen. But often I probably only get about halfway through, and then I'm like, ah, oh, that's enough of that style. I'd say this album is definitely one for fans of bands like 1914, who we covered on our end of year show, say later, God Defroned, or, you know, Bolt Throw, obviously, if you like that kind of um, military history-themed death metal, this is one of the better bands um, in the genre. I don't know their other two albums too well. I, I remember hearing of Frost of War, the first one, when it came out, but I never heard their uh, final album, and they're uh, sadly defunct now. But um, to give you a hint of the sound of this, I think I'm going to go for the track I'm particularly obsessed with this, off this album. This is Operation Z. Yeah. 
the next album, we're going to jump back a year from uh, Hell of Bullets to 2009. And this, the album we're going to cover here is why I think of Ed Warby as such an incredible kind of creative force in metal. This is his basically solo project, The Eleventh Hour, and its first album, Burden of Grief, um, released on Napalm Records. This project, um, I believe I remember reading around the time that about two years before starting this, or before releasing his album, he decided to start learning guitar. And he's recorded this album where he does guitar, bass, keyboards, drums, clean vocals, all the songwriting... Um, has one other member in uh, the very hard-working death metal magician, um, magician, possibly magician, uh, uh, Roger Johnson, uh, on scream vocals. And this this album is like pure death doom. If you know that kind of style, that that very clean, slow, mournful kind of doom with the slightly heavy death metal edge, but like not fast death metal. That kind of very slow kind of plodding heavy kind of dark death metal stuff like this album does sound very reminiscent of a lot of other bands doing this kind of thing but i think it's just a lot of really nice touches to it more than anything it's the guitar tone the guitar like it's clear working with all these bands like ed warby has got a mastery of how to make a great guitar sound but i don't think i can think of another guitarist whose guitar sounded this amazing two years after starting. Like, this is, like, a band coming out of the gates with, like, just the perfect tone on their first album. And, like, the guitar performance, while not technical, is incredibly tight and sounds huge. There's even a few sort of, like, melodic lead, almost solo bits thrown in there. It still has Ed's signature drum sound of just, like, this, like, punishing-sounding snare work. Like, I, I think... I don't know how... He hits it, but like the snare and kick just sounds so big. It his technique must be near perfect, and just everything is laser precise. But in this album, there's a lot of that kind of um, very kind of piano-like keyboard work. So uh, kind of there's big sections of like kind of piano-sounding stuff, and then kind of like more orchestral stabs over these huge heavy chords and these slow building long riffs the album's only like six songs long and they're all around like the nine minute mark um it starts with uh the track one last smoke which has a lot of interplay of ed's kind of very high pitch like incredibly sad sounding voice he's got like i can't think of another way to describe it he's a very sad singing voice but yeah it's, it's this very high pitch kind of like almost wavering kind of tone which really works this sort of very introspective, um, melodic kind of doom stuff. And then Rogger's got this um, more traditional death growl when they, they kind of play off each other throughout the whole album, like regularly kind of having an almost call and response, particularly good one at the end of this first track. Um, uh, and, and actually, lyrically, it's quite interesting because it's based on the usual, like, you know, usual Metal Archives lyrical descriptions of any Death Doom band of, like, loss, sorrow, grief, etc. But each song has a nice, unique subject matter. It's not just, I'm sad. Like, they, they, he's always based the emotion around something. One Last Smoke is essentially someone dying of lung cancer. And then Origins of Mourning is, like, mourning over a kind of I think a partner who committed suicide and you've got various kind of each song tells a little story which I hope none of it's real because 
then that would be really sad. But, um, <laughs> like, each song, and, and it does really capture an emotion, and because of the huge tone and everything in this album, it's very easy to get absorbed into a lot of it. I like the interplay of the guitar and the kind of subtle use of, like, the kind of piano sounds throughout. Um, it's a very big and rich-sounding album. There's moments where it descends into slight silliness, like there's a section in the middle of Origins of Mourning, the kind of 11-minute epic in the centre of the album, where it's sort of Ed telling a story over this kind of drawn-out piano passage, and it gets a bit... it's a bit cheesy, but then the song comes back with some of the best riffs of the album. So, you know, like, it's still brilliant. Um, I think for me, like, a real highlight track is the second one, In the Silent Grave, which is just crushing slab of doom um should get into uh, Robert uh, Johansson's um kind of credits he he is possibly the most busy man in death metal he, he's famous for bands like Paganizer Revolting Rib Spreader The Grotesquerie Down Among the Dead Men I might have miscounted this but in um according to Metal Archives he has released 78 albums which is mind-blowing seven of which alone came out in 2018 like i don't think anyone has recorded more death metal than this guy i and a lot of the albums he's like one of only two members in like i don't know a lot of his stuff well like if any of you listening are a kind of an expert definitely send links to you know the album to get into rogger's work because he's a great death metal vocalist and from what i've heard of his other stuff like a really solid guitarist as well but yeah, like, I, I still can't get my head around having released, you know, closing on a hundred death metal albums. That's that's madness. And actually, this seems to be quite a departure from his sort of usual style. But yeah, so there's um this this project though, well and truly Ed's own thing, and I, I think it's an incredible mission statement where he's set out to do do a certain sound and managed to create every instrument that perfectly fits that even when their instruments he's only just learned. In total, uh, so far, they've done two albums. as been one follow-up, and he's actually recruited um, a full live band, like featuring members of like Officium Trist and a few others. Um, I believe Ed plays guitar and does vocals on this, because it'd obviously be very hard for him to do the drums and vocals at the same time. That's not something many can manage.
The next band uh, we're going to get into is, again, around 2010 release and yet another supergroup. This is Demurg and their third and final album, Slack. Slackfuss Glambly. Um, so this is like the second time in this list we'll see uh, Dan Swano who appears on this doing guitar, like lead guitar and uh, keyboards and Roger Johansson again uh, on guitar and vocals. Uh, also in this band we have Ed Warby on drums and backing vocals, uh, Johan Berglund on bass and Margin Wellman on additional clean vocals. Uh, Dan, obviously, as well, does the mixing and mastering because, you know, couldn't just stick to one job, could he? Uh, so, um, this album is, again, it's another death metal supergroup, but the, while it takes elements, like it's got elements in common with both Eleventh Hour and Hail of Bullets, it's still got kind of its own thing going on. So, it's, again, pretty mid-paced, like, almost verging on melodic death metal, but with some pretty heavy in-your-face moments. Like, the album opens up with uh, Life is a Coma, which kind of just clatters you around the head straight away, kicks off really high-paced. Again, this album, tone-wise, is utterly amazing. The big difference between this and the two I mentioned before is actually the bass plays a huge role um, in this, and Johan's performance is absolutely excellent on it um but yeah there's so many really decent things like dan swano's solo work is absolutely amazing which is interesting because he's not someone i really know of as a lead guitarist i don't think it's an instrument he particularly loves to play like he's i think he's said before he's m most enjoys doing drums but um ed warby is probably the better drummer of the two of them so definitely glad to hear hear him on this like and ed's sound is as ever amazing like the drums really drive this album and his performance is a lot more fancy than on the previous two a lot more fills and kind of uh just interesting stuff where he gets to play around a bit more i guess this album has a bit more space on it as well it's got a lot of keyboard work on it but unlike 11th Hour, which far more went for that kind of orchestral or just like grand piano type sound, this is far more Dan Swano's take on doing keyboard, which is a lot of 70s and 80s inspired synthy kind of weirdness. Like uh, some of the some of the tracks drop in some very odd bits of synth playing that you kind of wouldn't expect. And a lot of what this album does is great for just wrong-footing you. Stuff happens that you just wouldn't see coming. So in the middle of this pounding opener, Life is a Coma, um, it suddenly kind of breaks down into this super clean kind of riff over this like very complex I think, tapping bass line where um, Ed Warby and Margin sort of trade off these vocals. Like she's got this really brilliant kind of just, you know, over-the-top pop singer voice. Like, I think kind of actually, like, in the realm of, like, Floor Janssen of uh, current Nightwish, something like that kind of voice. And then you've got Ed with his really mournful, kind of, like, higher clean sort of slightly dropped away in the background. And then, then just burst back out into more kind of pounding death metal. Um, and the next track, Death Grasps Oblivion, much more of the same. But then we get to Travellers of the Vortex, which is quite reminiscent of 11th Hour, and it's much slower riffing led by Ed Warby's clean vocals. Um, and again, we get great interplay between him and uh, Roger doing these these kind of, is more kind of guttural uh, death growls. 
Um, one of the real highlights of this album actually is around the uh, a bit later towards the end actually is um, the track from Laughter to Retching, which again is this heavy Titanic doom kind of well doomy death metal that goes for a lot of different um, kind of phases. But then right in the middle we get these this beautiful clean vocal passage, and then that descends into like this kind of heavy bass playing and a really cool solo, and then the that clean vocal passage reappears with an extended even more melodic clean vocal passage on the end of it and actually um the the final sort of clean vocal passage of this track is recalled at the very end of the entire album it's really really interesting um a lot of this album i really like there's loads of um there's loads of clever things in the lyric writing like feels quite Lovecraftian and terrifying and like a lot of the references make it kind of quite creepy despite it's like it's got a classic dance one production job where it's very kind of clean and polished but it's still got a creepy edge to it despite like a lot of the very kind of cheesy keyboards in places and kind of very over-the-top clean vocals but yeah just a really interesting interesting piece and it, it's something that's a bit different for everyone involved like i i've never quite heard any of them doing something like this maybe maybe it's more fits with dance one like i think fans of bands like with escape would would get this a lot more than fans of bands like the grotesquerie or rib spreader that's it's far more um this is far more of a dance one melodic project than a kind of brutal death metal project, or even the like, the down the line hefty death metal Ed Warby usually is known for. But unfortunately, it's the final of their three albums. I've not actually heard the first two, but like the first two looked like a side off as far as a rocker project, and more kind of people were added into it as it went along. Of all the albums we're covering today as well, I think this is probably the best album cover. I really love this. It's like kind of an image of like some great tower with like creeping kind of uh Lovecraftian type mold crawling up the walls and a load of like a weird planetscape in the background. Yeah, it's just very cool. Also totally doesn't outstay its welcome. It's just under forty minutes, eight tracks, really to the point. Like at any moment where I start getting bored with a certain style, it tends to like flip it up and throw something weird in, like as the aforementioned kind of weird keyboards or just suddenly bursting out into like a a really aggressive like fast um, death metal moment and then pulling back to kind of way more kind of clean melodic I just wish more bands would try something kind of like this I feel it in my dreams This ocean grasp my fingers Choking my dying I 
So the final album we're going to get into is, by far and away, I think the most famous project Ed's involved with. Um, fans of this band will probably have already been screaming out that I need to cover this. Um, so this is Arion, um, and I'm going to be covering their seventh of ten albums, The Human Equation, released in 2004 on Inside Out Music. So for those who don't know, Arion is a long-running project formed in about 1994, by mad genius uh, Arjun Lucassen, who basically what he sets out to do with each album is write these epic, gigantic prog concept albums. And the the kind of the signature style of them is these normally like often like eighty to a hundred minute long monster albums, going through progressive music into very metal elements, but with always telling a long and intricate story where each guest vocalist he gets plays a different character in it. He often gets around, like, 10 to 12 guest vocalists in. And for me, this is my absolute favourite of the Arion albums. Never got into any of them quite as much as this one. So Arjun on this album is <laughs> the is playing so much stuff. Um, like electric acoustic and lap steel guitars, mandolin, keyboard, Hammond organ... Uh, bass vocals as as one of the characters in it, and then Ed Warby is like his long-standing um, uh, drummer for basically every area on album. I think he's not on the first two. I think he joined on into the Electric Castle. Um, we have, yeah, we have so much going on here. I think what really sells this area on album above all the others for me is it's. It's the story of it. So most Arjun's albums are these ludicrously over-the-top prog concepts. Like, Into the Electric Castle is like a load of characters from all space and time are, are transported to a location and must, you know, traverse the Electric Castle. You've got the one that's a string of binary as a title, which is all about like, a group of people on a fancy world that's underwater. So they're all kind of a bit ridiculous and over-the-top. But the concept here... It's just amazingly solid. It really, really works. Um, and apologies, like, this is probably the only metal podcast ever where I'm going to give a spoiler warning. But I, I'm going to completely spoil what happens in the plot because I, I think it's an interesting way to talk about it. I mean, you don't need to fully understand the plot to, to love the album. The music is utterly incredible as well. Um, but essentially the plot is a... A man finds himself in a coma. He's, he's in a hospital bed. It's to the story is told from essentially two locations. The hospital bed where his best friend and his wife are sort of fussing over him, hoping he can come out of this coma he's found himself in after a weird car accident. And then the main core of the album is inside his own head, where the main character, known as me on the album, is arguing and discussing his life with his various emotions, which are all played uh, by different vocalists. You've got reason, pride, love, agony, passion, and rage. And they're all trying to sort of work their way over what happened, why he's in a coma, and how to return him back to life. Full warning as if you needed it, this album is immensely cheesy. Quite probably the cheesiest album we have ever covered on the podcast. Um... I think Rob genuinely doesn't like what I've shown him of it. And actually, I think the first couple of times I I heard it, especially as like a, a teenager, was just like, what the fuck is this? But um, death metal fans and fans of extreme music out there, people who enjoyed the last four albums I kind of went through, 
give this time it really does have something incredible to give and if you need a hook to get in there there's some pretty amazing guests on this um so we have in on vocals michael ackfeld playing fear uh, we have Devin Townsend playing Rage, because what else could he play? The main character of me is played by James Rabri. Then we have um, Devin Gra Graves uh, playing Agony. Devin Graves is of the, the amazing kind of prog metal band Psychotic Waltz. Um, we have um, uh, Eric Clayton um, of the... like. I guess it's a hard category, well, not a hard category to win, but definitely the best Christian metal band, um, Saviour Machine, who are utterly excellent. Um, but he has this beautiful kind of low, clean, very operatic voice uh, playing Reason. And then we have some other people from the more, like, most aerial guest vocalists are from the kind of the prog power end of things. So... We have Irene Janssen's Passion. Irene is Floor Janssen's sister, who was recommended for this album um, by her sister, who's, I think, uh, in Star One and some other stuff with um, with Arjun. Um, we also have Heather Findlay as Love, um, who's got <laughs> like this kind of sickly, syrupy, sweet voice, but it really works for you know, the character of love. Um, we have Magnus Eckwald as Pride, who is kind of from a, a far more kind of classic rock kind of band, and his voice being this bombastic, you know, kind of Led Zeppelin-style uh, kind of clean voice is perfect for for kind of the emotion of Pride. Um, and then um, some completely undiscovered musician in this, Marcella Bovier, plays the wife. Um, Arjun himself does the voice of... Uh, of the best friends as these two characters have a lot of back and forth in it but Marcella's voice is incredible and she, she like Arjun just held this big competition auditioning loads of musicians um like to be another guest vocal because he was kind of like there must be so many undiscovered vocalists I missed and a couple of friends recommended it for her and he loved the cd she sent in and he flew her out all the way from Mexico to record her part and you know She's possibly one of the best vocalists on it. I, I absolutely love her voice. Um, so that's that's kind of the vocalist. You, you, you probably get the vague idea that it's going to be some very clean vocals, but then a bit more kind of off-the-wall stuff, particularly from, like, Michael Ackfeldt and Devon Townsend. Um, but the core of the music is very interesting. We have, at its heart, it's a metal album. There's a lot of big guitar passages, you know, and Ed Warby's holding down the drums. He doesn't shy away from his brilliant kind of death metal abilities essentially but then there's loads of other stuff going on um the the acoustic guitar works amazing there's lots of sections where it descends into brilliant acoustic guitar stuff and a lot of other like essentially acoustic instruments with like violin um all kinds of various um wind instruments didgeridoo pan pipes flute bassoon recorder all played by the same person as well um and then a great pile of various keyboards, mainly of the, the kind of 70s sound. So you've got a few people um, credited with synthesizer solos. It's a Hammond organ solo. One of, one of them is by Oliver Wakeman, Rick Wakeman's son. And also Arjun himself plays a lot of like synthesizers on this. What I'm going to do is, um, because it's 100 minutes long, like what, 20 tracks, um, 
I'm going to play a couple of little clips rather than a big one at the end. So I think the best one to show you the general tone of the album, I'll play a clip from uh, Day 11, Love. massively cheesy but also massively varied lots of different tones going on there like in that particular clip it goes from the the kind of huge heavy guitars with massive kind of synth sounds over the top into gentle acoustic guitar and the kind of the interplay of the various vocalists like there's something about Arion, i guess just the sheer ambition and kind of success he had early on particularly we say their third album into electric castle he's managed to recruit just an incredible array of vocalists and musicians to help out with this kind of stuff like James Rabri's vocal performance on this is some of the best he's ever done. And even people like Michael Ackerfeld, who you don't think of as being like these kind of virtuoso vocalists, he's used so perfectly. Like the interplay of the various vocalists do play the various emotions is perfect. Like everyone is so well assigned to their role. Like, as I say, Heather Thinley as love is um, very kind of saccharine and sweet, whereas Iron Janssen, who is Floor Janssen's sister, like, just real bombastic power as passion. Um, uh, James Rabri plays this incredibly well. Like, the, there is hugely a degree of acting, essentially, in these various vocal parts. It's it's really quite amazing. Um, and the story takes on... like The story is really engaging as you go from song to song. Like the, You genuinely want to play out this mystery to the end, and you can get behind the emotion of each vocalist. Like, no one seemed to be phoning in their guest performance on this album. Everyone was flown out to um, Arjun's own studio, which he refers to as The Castle, and they clearly worked very closely for a long time to nail all these performances. And a huge amount of why it sounds quite so incredible, I believe, is Ed Warby locking down that rhythm section. There's a reason he is the only other member of Beyond Arjun, and he's been kept in the band for, you know, 20-plus years. Like, this drum performance is utterly brilliant much like all the vocal performances a really interesting one um i thought the story about it was was great was uh devon townsend who essentially arjun approached much like the other vocalists were like you're a great vocalist i really like what you're doing would you like to be involved in this and devon townsend was like no absolutely not um i don't want to sing other people's vocal melodies or other people's lyrics so arjun went well how about you write all your bits 
sent it off to him, like, essentially the concept of happening in each part. And then Devin was like, yeah, I'll do this. And he's come back with these... Like, his bits are so weird and sound so Devin Townsend. It, it's it's brilliant. Um, like, he's, I think he's saying there's almost, like, 25 vocal tracks per moment... Um, he appears and it's so perfect for the character of Rage as well because everything that Devon Townsend appears in is just left field as hell and this complete battering over the head with like you know more tracks than your brain can comprehend. You can also tell Arjun's like a big fan of the music of a lot of people he's working with. I, I know he spends a lot of time um, searching out the various musicians and really keeps his ears to the ground with modern music to find great vocalists and stuff to work with. There's brilliant moments in the album where he's really tailored songs to um, people's styles as well, like um, track Day 14, Pride. Um, here's a great kind of um, interplay between James Rabri and uh, Magnus Eckworld, who... Eckweld, who plays Pride, and it it sounds very much like um, I could say like Trainer Four era um, Dream Theater, where like complete with that kind of really phasered guitar intro, just and like um, and kind of clips of like from the news and stuff, which yeah, it just really reminds me of that era. Whereas Day Twelve Trauma is the song that's far more given over to. Um, Michael Ackerfeld and Eric Clayton, and it featured, like, trauma features these utterly, like, brutal, heavy moments where Michael Ackerfeld gets to unleash his growl rather than just his kind of, like, more mournful, clean vocals. see like that's actually a really quite brutal in places um i should say though most of the album is far more kind of 
cheesy and weird than that. That's definitely like one of the heavier moments uh, throughout. Um, as well, I hadn't mentioned the structure of the album is day one through 20, so it's telling a story in kind of consecutive days, although the timeline does jump around quite a lot. Um, some real highlights of the album are day two, Isolation, which is the long kind of epic that introduces all the characters and kind of essentially sets up the scene. Um, and you have Love, which is another kind of completely over-the-top one where you have loads of people playing off. Trauma, which we just heard, which is the, the long kind of essentially extreme metal bit of it. Um, uh, Loser, that we'll get to in a bit, which I think is probably my personal favourite, despite its utter ridiculousness. And then the kind of uh, closer to the album, Confrontation, which uh, essentially has this really brilliant thing of it. It's like a track that builds up and up and every vocalist gets a moment to show off their their kind of most powerful bit of vocal noise like everyone does a different kind of scream or high-pitched wail um <laughs> michael akafel because he doesn't really have a clean voice that can do this just screams like does his proper death metal grunt ed warby even gets a little show off because the song just keeps getting faster and faster and then suddenly like full-blown uh hail of bullets style double kicks come in it just sounds massive um also as arjun himself put it this is the point of the album where he ruins it because the the final song like comes to a great epic close with james rebree like waking up in his coma resolving the issues in his life um and then it cuts to like weird beeping noises and uh, a voiceover saying about a computer simulation having been over. So yeah, uh, Arjun couldn't quite resist making this a ridiculous sci-fi concept album after all. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it's still... I'd still say it packs, like, a massive emotional punch. Like, there's really something incredible about this album. Like, I um, if, in, in, if you, you enjoy this and want to see kind of more in this direction... Um, Last year, well, not last year, uh, 2017, uh, they released the Theatre Equation. So Aerion have been doing a few live things uh, over the years, and this is like the big culmination where they did, I think it was three shows in a row, um, where he got all the guest vocalists he could. Unfortunately, there's a few that couldn't make it. Uh, Devin Townsend's not there, um, and Michael Ackfell aren't there, both because of touring commitments. And sadly, Mike Baker, who plays the character of father, uh, of the father, died in 2008, so obviously had to be replaced for that. So there's been a bit of melding of parts, but it's a really incredible show and shows like the kind of the ridiculousness you can get away with um, in metal of it's basically like a stage show. So there's this brilliant setup stage in the background. You've got the like the wind instrument guy, a cello player, a violin player. Um, and then Ed Warby right at the back, uh, a couple of guitarists and bass players, a um, couple of keyboard players. And then the stage is set up, and everyone, like all the vocalists, are in costumes and actually play their characters, like, you know, sort of pride and agony will be running around stage, like essentially beating the hell out of uh, James Rebree's sort of tragic character in the centre of this. Up towards the top of the stage, you have like a bed that um uh the kind of 
the characters of the wife and best friend are kind of fussing over and there's all sorts of props and J James Rodriguez actually like acting in this he's really really good um like I think everyone does a really good job of it like um uh, Devin Graves uh, as Agony, like his character looks in pain the whole way through. He's got these weird, twisting, jerky motions. Whereas Magnus, the character of Pride, looks tall and commanding. Um, Irene Janssen, probably the least experienced kind of vocalist of the lot, really has an amazing does like an amazing job of playing passion in this. Also, just being a giant really helps because she yeah, dominates the stage when she's she's in place on it. But also watching the whole backing band and all what they're doing to kind of make this music um, is incredible. Like, there's so much complex stuff going on here. Because if you go back to like, the Human Equation album, there's, like, absolutely brilliant guitar work on it throughout. Like, as the aforementioned, Ed's performance is, is utterly mind-blowing. But yeah, I'd really highly recommend the DVD. And particularly Hats Off to James Abreu on it, whose performance is like, immensely real, despite, I think... His mum passed away like a couple of days before recording that live show, and there's a whole part in the show where his character is struggling to deal with the death of his mum. So that must have been horrendously real at the time. Yeah, really, really worth seeing. Yes, it's cheesy. Yes, it's over the top, but it is some of the more impressive stuff that can be done with this genre, and and really a highlight, especially of like the prog power metal kind of end of things. Like it still packs an emotional punch. This isn't all kind of. Dragon Force, wankery, like, this is really well-constructed emotional music, even if, yes, it is immensely silly. So there's one song um, I wanted to mention on this in particular, and this is Day 16, Loser. This is, um, yeah, the, the one that's kind of a massive departure from everything else so on. Uh, so it starts with the, the, the didgeridoo I mentioned earlier, um, like, playing this kind of slightly cool beat essentially and then everything kicks in and it's the only song to feature Mike Baker who plays the father and it's essentially um, Mike Baker doing his best Alice Cooper impression as this this horrible dad figure just like insulting insulting his comatose son and, and it's it's very folk metally it's very jaunty and bouncy and then at the end this gives way to um, Devin Townsend and Michael Ackerfeld doing this dual insane scream duet thing. It, it's, yeah, it's an absolute highlight of this album. And I think if you can't get your head around this, this probably won't ever be for you. But yeah, it's, it's one of those just truly weird moments in metal, but I, I personally love it. And I also just can't believe the people who were involved in making this. This is not their usual style in any regard. I had my fun, I'm going back to the place I don't call home There's no one there who waits for me, but you won't hear me moan My ex-wives all sue me, and with half my kids in jail I'll still come out laughing, cause me, I never fail Loser! <laughs> Yeah, 
literally no idea how Devin Townsend does that. That is, that is a amazingly bizarre vocal performance. The other thing I wanted to mention actually is with the the live show, the theatre occasion, Arjun doesn't actually appear in the live band for it. Um, he very much took on a director role, which is is really cool. And yeah, like he's he seems to be immensely humble about his work with this project and. I think that's that's really cool. Like, I wish I could get into the rest of it more, but I think the, the sci-fi is like that bit too much for me. But anyway, I hope this episode has sort of convinced you to go and check out some of Ed Warby's stuff if you didn't know it before. And if you did, like, let me know your favourites of his because I've far from covered like his discography. There is, yeah, I mean, he must have recorded close on like thirty studio albums by this point. The guy's quite incredible. And not just that, like listening to interviews with him, like, he doesn't even really practice all that much. He just seems to have this innate like ability to keep time like a metronome while introducing great grooves to a lot of his music. I, so he kind of reminiscent of like a sort of like Dave Lombardo type who just has immense power and real good like drum writing ability, even if a lot of what he do, he's doing isn't the most technical. It's not the most he's not like a super fast George Colias blasty type. He's just a guy with a lot of groove, and for say a band like Hail of Bullets, he can he can make it sound like this huge kind of wall of sound, gives so much power to already decent riffs, and and then then even lock down like a, an album like like Arion, this really complex prog epic. I think he does like even like weird polyrhythm stuff on this. Like he's an immensely talented person, but very subtly so. Um, yeah, like I'm a huge fan of his, and I do think he's a real sort of underrated presence in extreme metal. I don't know how much of that is just because the Netherlands scene doesn't get the praise it deserves quite as much as a lot of the the rest of the metal world. But yeah, so that's pretty much uh, it for this episode. We're going to be doing another one very soon. Uh, There's going to be another one with me and Rob and our friend Simon's given us four kind of Death Doom albums that he really likes to go over, which none of which we'd heard before. So should be a very interesting one. Um, if you liked 11th Hour, I think it's going to be a lot more in that kind of vein. Um, yes, as usual, uh, please contact us uh, at, Phil's Bre- at, at Breakfast Metal sorry, uh, on Twitter, uh, Phil's Breakfast Metal on Facebook. If you want to email us, uh, philsbreakfastmetal at gmail.com. Um, and if you could rate and review us on iTunes, that would be amazing. We've got a few reviews up there now, which is yeah, very kind of you guys. Um yeah, so hit me up. Let let me know if there's another musician like this you want me to cover. Just doing one person's essentially career through like this is, it's a lot of fun. Um, and I think there's a lot of amazing unsung heroes in metal, and even ones we we you know that do get a lot of praise. Like I think I'd love to do one of these on Dan Swano who came up a bit here because his kind of metal history is amazing. Yeah, if there's any fans of uh, Rogger's work as well, hit me up and let me know what I should start listening to because. 78 albums is far too daunting to jump into. I I need to be recommended one, I think, before I go anywhere near it. Um, yeah, so, and if there's anything you want us to cover, just get in touch and, and let me know. I'm always looking for good new music or an excuse to cover stuff, you know, I already love. 